welcome to episode 41 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Mitchell Zexer, student at Western University and Western Regional Representative on the RSA Medical Student Council, speaks with Dr. Evie Marcolini, at-large board member on the AAEM Board of Directors. Today, Mr. Zexer and Dr. Marcolini talk about end-of-life discussions. Hello, everyone. My name is Mitch Zexer, and I'm the Vice Chair of Education for AAM RSA. And today I'm sitting here with Dr. Evie Marcolini. She's the Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine and Neurology, as well as the Medical Director of Sky Health Critical Care at Yale University School of Medicine and part of the AAEM Board of Directors, as well as the co-chair of the Scientific Assembly that we're here at today. Dr. Marcolini, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Mitch. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Of course. So as emergency physicians, we really love procedures. And a lot of the procedures that we do are tactile procedures. But sometimes we have to do emotional procedures. And what I'd like to talk about today is palliative care in the emergency department and some of the tough conversations that happen all the time in the ED and how we can become comfortable with them. So for all of our listeners, kind of wanted to give everyone a breakdown of some of the topics, such as how to set up a meeting with the family, how to break up some of the news to the family, and about family meetings here during the resuscitation. So first things first, Dr. Marcolini, how do you set up a meeting or conversation with the family? Good question. And you're right. These tough conversations happen all the time in emergency medicine. And we are very good at doing this. But it doesn't come naturally. There's some anxiety around it. And there's some principles that I think are very important. And this is, this is part of palliative care. And it's about having a plan when you're going to talk with families. And these tough conversations can be around somebody who died. It can be around somebody who's not doing so well. It can be many different things, but we'll, we'll talk about some of the basic principles. First of all, when you're setting up the meeting for a conversation with a family, introduce yourself and introduce everybody in the room. Families will come with family members, with friends, with their, their pastors or their priests. Everybody in the room should be acknowledged and introduced. Bring the nurse with you who's taking care of the patient. Introduce the nurse as well. When you have a meeting like this, it's good to wear the white coat. I know a lot of us work just in scrubs or in street clothes, and, and we, we don't wear the white coat as, as often as it used to be. But putting that white coat on tells the family that you are a physician and you are a level of authority that they can look up to because they're going to be looking for answers. When you set this up, try to have it in a place where you can all sit down. If there's not enough chairs then you would give up your chair, and it's best to kneel down without being awkward about it. Get to the level of the patient's family that you're talking with and make eye contact. Eye contact is so important, and you really want the family to know you're right there with them, you're talking to them, and as best you can, you're not nervous about having this conversation. Following up on that, 
What's your opinion about having a tactile presence with the family, such as if you notice that the families are getting a little bit more emotional, uh, maybe tearing up, how do you feel about you know, putting your hand on their shoulder, taking a moment to quietly let everyone reflect about the situation? That's a good question, too. You brought up a few different really important points about how do you break bad news? How do you talk about this kind of stuff? There's some things that you definitely want to do, and there's some things that you definitely do not want to do. So I'll go through the way that I think about this. And one of the first rules is break the news up front. If somebody's died and you're starting your conversation, say, Mrs. Smith, I'm sorry to tell you, but your husband has died. Don't try to use more comfortable terminology like, your husband has passed away, or he's not with us anymore, because that's open to interpretation. And the family might hear, oh, he's not with us anymore. Did he go to another hospital, or, or, or did he go somewhere else? They need to hear the bad news up front. And then, once you break the bad news, be quiet and wait for their reaction. You're going to see a lot of different family reactions. Some families are very demonstrative and loud and and expressive. Go with it. Let them do that. That's the way that they process. Don't worry about it. Some families are going to be very quiet and they're not going to say anything. It's important to give them that time to absorb the news that you just gave them and wait for their reaction and then go with it. The next thing is express your sorrow. I know I speak on part of my team and the nurses and the physicians and everybody who's here. We are really sorry for your loss. We're sorry for what your husband has gone through. And we're sorry for what you and your family are going through. So express that grief. And then get a feel for the family's needs. Some families are going to have a million questions. They're going to want to know every little detail. They're going to ask you questions you won't have the answer to. They're going to say, why did this happen? What caused it? What's going on? And, and what I tell people is, I'm going to tell you everything I know, and I'm going to tell you what I don't know, because there are some things that we simply don't know. So get a feel for their needs and go with it. And, and it's at this point of time where you're going to be telling the story and answering questions. So telling the story means, all right, your husband, he collapsed while he was at work, and paramedics got there, they did everything they could, and you know, tell the story up until the point where, where you are at that point in time. And when I say up front, break the news up front, a lot of times I think we have the tendency to start with the story. If you're telling the story before they know the end of the story, they're not listening to a word you're saying. So you can go through that story. Your husband was at work, he collapsed, etc. They're not hearing any of it. They need to hear what, what the answer is because that's what they're waiting to hear. So then when you go through that and ask questions, and answer questions. Spend some time getting to know who the patient was. It's, it's a really good thing to say, so who was your husband? What did he do? What did he value in life? What was really important to him? And it's at this point in time where the family may open up and start telling stories. Everybody in the room might start telling stories. Oh, I remember the time when he did this or that. And, and that's really therapeutic for them. And the fact that you're willing to take the time to encourage this and listen to it, it's amazing. It's really good for them. I've never had a family who didn't benefit from being able to tell the story of who their loved one is and was. 
and you get a feel for this, then you're going to address some of the logistical issues. You may be in a family meeting room that's away from where the patient is, and you'll say, listen, I'm going to take you in, and you're going to see your loved one, and this is what he's going to look like. Or you can say you can bring as many people in as you want to, or you can just go by yourself, or you don't have to go at all. We're going to have a separate room. And in our hospital, we have a room that's set aside for the family to grieve, and the patient's body is in there if it's somebody who's died. But if somebody who hasn't died yet, you say, I'm going to bring you in and realize that he's going to have a tube in his mouth, he's on a ventilator, he's not going to be awake because we gave him medication. So prep them for what they're about to see. And then tell them exactly what's going to happen and what is expected of them. If somebody has died, I might say, I'm going to take you to the room where your husband's body is, and you can spend as much time as you want. When you're ready, you can just leave. We don't need any more information. We don't need you to do anything. Just tell us who the funeral home is eventually, and then just leave when you want to, because the families won't know what to do. They probably haven't been through this. Hopefully, they haven't been through this, and you need to give them sort of the rules of the road. The other things about this kind of a conversation is, and you brought this up, is don't be afraid to be human. Don't be afraid to cry if it's natural. I mean, don't try to fake crying or anything like that, but some stories are just so sad that it makes us want to cry. And I think that that helps the family see that we're human and we really care. And that goes a long way. This family is in the midst of the worst crisis that they've ever had, and they're looking to you for guidance. So it's really important. And then the other thing you brought up is personal touch. Do you put a hand on the shoulder or do you touch their hand? Now, this is 2018, so, you know, touching of the patient's family can have some pros and cons, and you have to feel that situation out, and you have to judge about, you know, what's appropriate to do. I am a hugger, so I tend to hug people. And being a woman, if I'm hugging somebody, it's probably not going to get me in trouble. You being a guy hugging somebody might get you in trouble. It's always a good question to ask. Say, are you a hugger? Can I hug you? Can I give you a hug? And then you'll get a response. It's either going to be yes, no, or they'll probably just hug you. So I personally think it's good to have human touch. I think a hand on the shoulder is good and it's appropriate, a hand on the hand. Just got to think about who you're, who you're talking to and working with and get a gestalt for whether or not it's appropriate. If you ask yourself the question, is this appropriate? Is this going to be interpreted in a bad way? If you ask that question and answer it, you're, you're going to be right, probably, because you've thought about it. So I think that human touch is actually very good for, for families. Thank you so much. That was a multitude of information that I think all of us can utilize. You know, actually, whenever I'm in a situation like that, I do ask myself, is this the right time to to maybe hold their hand and help them feel better? Now, you said earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you want to stay as long as you can with with the patient's family and let them know that you're there. We're in the emergency department. We don't control time. We don't have set appointments. People just come as they come, and sometimes we need to go. So do you use your ancillary staff to help continue to facilitate the grieving bereavement that these patients are using? And if so, who do you use? 
It's a good question too. And one of the things as an attending, if I'm on and there's another attending on and I'm going in to have a family meeting, I'm going to tell my colleague, hey, I'm going into a family meeting. If something happens, just so you know, that's where I am. Can you cover? Because you really don't want to cut this meeting short if you don't have to, because it's it's really important and can and have impact on the family into the future. I do use ancillary staff as much as possible. We have a chaplaincy service. We have folks who are priests or pastors or even Buddhist practitioners, and they all are interchangeable. So if I have a chaplain available, I bring them in. They're, they're always very helpful and sensitive. Social work. We have social work available, and they come in as well. It's always good to have a multidisciplinary meeting, and sometimes families bring their own or ask if we can call their own pastor, and that's a great idea, and we help them out with that. We talked before about bringing the nurse in, and any, anybody the family wants to have in the room, fair game, because this is about them. I always tell people, your loved one is my first priority, optimizing their outcome, helping them get better, but you are my close second priority, and part of my job is to help you get through this crisis and answer questions that you might have, help you figure out what to do, and just to give you any kind of help that you need. Awesome. To follow up on that real quick, for these patients, the grieving process can take, I mean, there's no real set time. Do you try to set up follow-up appointments with their primary care doctor that maybe knew the patient or knew the family and try to go forward to help them cope with the loss of their loved one? Or is that kind of something out of the scope of things that we can do in the emergency department just because we may not have all that information or even the uh, capability to do so? Yeah, good, good question. And what we do is we will contact the patient's primary medical doctor and tell them about what happened and get a feel from them about what the family needs. Many times they will know the family and they'll reach out and contact the family themselves. And that's pretty much what we do. Great. Thank you. So sometimes we don't have to have the end-of-life conversation where the patient has already died. Sometimes we're kind of in the situation where the patient may end up dying soon. A lot of patients may have either, they might have some sort of spiritual feelings and they are expecting everything under the sun. What do you do when a patient asks you, for a miracle. Doc, what can you do? I'm hoping for anything. What can we really do for my my loved one? And how do you respond to that? I think what you're asking about is it comes under the rubric of cultural competency. Because maybe the family is expecting a miracle. Maybe the family is hoping for a miracle. And in their mind and in their picture, a miracle is something that's going to defy everything medical that you are telling them. And that does happen. It happens all the time. And what I say to families in that situation is, I am and my team, we're all as hopeful as you are that your loved one will improve, will wake up, will get better. But it's my responsibility to tell you everything that I know from having taken care of patients like this over the years. I'm not saying that a miracle can't happen, because that's the nature of a miracle, 
but I'm saying that a patient in this situation, I've never seen them wake up and come back to what their baseline is, or however you can describe what the reality is. I don't try to encourage magical thinking that somebody's going to wake up if we really know that they're not going to. But I also try to be very sensitive to people's cultural beliefs. And it's important not to set up an antagonism between myself as the allopathic medical physician who practices evidence-based medicine versus the family who has spiritual beliefs that may include the existence of miracles. When we set up an adversarial situation or conversation like that, it never helps. We want families to understand that we're on their side and we're giving them everything that we know and everything that we have in our toolkit. And these are good end-of-life questions. Happen a lot up in the neuro ICU, but they happen in the emergency department as well. And I think it's good to be practiced at them and thoughtful about them and have an approach that you can go with. Great. So a couple more questions real fast. So there's been kind of two views of thought on what happens when a patient needs to be resuscitated. And some people feel that they would like to have the family present during the resuscitation just so they can see the nature of it and understand that we are doing absolutely everything that we can for their loved one. And some people believe that maybe they shouldn't be there because it may be a bit graphic for them. What are your thoughts on that? This is a very dynamic conversation that, that is ongoing. And I've heard people talk about this and take both sides of the issue. Personally, I'm on the side of the family should be able to see everything we're doing in a resuscitation or in a code. Now, I know that there are concerns. Some folks would be concerned that, A, the family can't handle it. They might not emotionally be able to handle seeing something like that. Some people fear that if the family is in the room while we're resuscitating, we won't be able to perform to our optimum. And we might make mistakes, or we might do something wrong, or we might, not, we might be so nervous that they're watching. I don't buy that. We know what we're doing, and we do it well. And having family there shouldn't throw us off our game. Some people think that families are going to get in the midst of it and they're going to you know, throw themselves on the body or, or, or do something very expressive and harm the patient or even harm the folks taking care of the patient. And if you bring somebody into a resuscitation or a code, you should have a support person with them. And that person oftentimes in our shop is the chaplain. And they're going to stand right next to the family member and they're going to explain what's going on as best they can. And they typically know what's going on. And they're going to be there to answer questions, to make sure that they have a chair that family member can sit in and help them understand what's going on and take them out if it's getting to be too much. When I invite family members into a resuscitation or a code, I always offer it to them. And I say, would you like to come in and see what we're doing? It's, it's going to be graphic, and I describe a little bit of what they're going to see, and I say, you don't have to. If you, if you want to and you think you can handle it, then you are always welcome. 
If it gets to be too much, you can leave. So I offer it to them. And I'm also getting a feel for the family too. If I do this, security is always close by. If something outrageous happens, they can, they can jump in and, and take care of whatever is going on. And the other side of this issue is the medical team members. Some folks don't think it's a good idea to bring family members in. And if I'm going to bring a family member in, I let the team know. And I ask, is anybody not okay with us bringing family members in? And if somebody's not okay with it, then maybe they can swap out with another, you know, medical provider and we can remedy it that way. I've never run into the case where anybody in the room on the medical team was against it, but I always let them know, okay, folks, we're bringing family member in and this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to continue to run this code. We're going to get the ultrasound. We're going to look at the cardiac motion. We're going to see what's happening. And if that happens, if, if we see that there's no more activity, I'm going to call the code. This is how I try to prep the team for what to expect because I, I don't want my team members to, to be anxious or to feel uncomfortable bringing a family member in. And in our shop, we do it frequently, so people are pretty used to it. Well, well if I could add yes, one more thing. Why do I bring family members in? I bring them in because I think it's really, really valuable. And it's valuable because they get resolution and they see that we did everything we could. And I'll tell a story of, I went to, I was having dinner with friends of mine once and we were having dinner in a restaurant and somebody else sat down next to us and they said, I remember you. And I didn't know who they were. And they said, my dad died in your emergency department a year ago. And you let us come in the room and watch what happened. And that was the best thing for my mother because she saw that everything was done. And she didn't have to carry on with the questions in her head. Was there something else they could have done? And she said it was really great resolution for her. And thank you for that. I'll never forget that conversation. And I think that for, for most families, it's the best thing you can do. They should have the right to be with their loved one as they're going through this or maybe even dying. And you want them to be able to know that everything was done. And what better way than seeing it? Yeah, I think closure is probably one of the most important things that we can provide for a family when they lose their loved one. Just to piggyback off of that real fast, what about closure for your team? I mean, the entire medical team is doing everything that they can to save this person's life. I mean, that's kind of why we are ED doctors. Well, not me personally, but, you know, maybe one day. But for the rest of the team, the reason you guys are ER physicians are because you're masters of resuscitation, you're masters of emergencies. But sometimes it kind of hits close to home. Maybe the patient reminds us of a loved one that we have ourselves. How do you as an attending go forward and, you know, help the team deal and process with what they just did and have to move on to the next patient. That's really important. And as the attending in the room, I'm not only responsible for the patient and the family, but I am responsible for my team. And during the resuscitation and during a code, I'm observing my team members. I'm seeing how they're handling this, how they're doing. And 
I'm going to touch base with them afterwards, especially if it was a, a very emotional case, like maybe a, a pediatric patient or a case where the family was very emotive and expressive and it can be a little bit jarring, right? And so I do check in with people afterward and just have a conversation with them. How are you doing? And how did that, how did you feel about that? And the other thing I do is when the event is over, whatever it is, whether it's resuscitation or a code and the family's out of the room, before the medical folks start leaving, I say, thank you, everybody, very much. This was very smoothly run. Everybody did a great job. And I express thanks to everybody before they leave and make sure that they hear that because it does take a lot out of you personally. If I sense that somebody is not doing so well with it, I'll find them soon after and see how they're doing. The other people who help with that are the chaplains and my team members themselves. I remember taking care of one of my good friends who was in the resuscitation bay. You should never take care of your friends or your family. And I wasn't directly taking care of him, but one of our techs read me. She knows me and she read me and she said, what's going on? And I, I said, this was really hard for me to be in on this case because I, I found my friend in a bad situation and managed to get him to the emergency department and it shook me up. And I found myself having a very hard time processing the medicine of it. And she saw that and she pulled me aside and said, how are you doing? What's going on? And we talked about it and it was really, really helpful. So we all need to take care of each other and it doesn't need to be the attending physician asking everybody. It needs to be all of us and we need to role model that behavior where the nurses, the techs, the chaplain, anybody who's in the room can ask anybody else, how you doing? Yeah, I think emotional intelligence is very important in this situation. So final question, for people like myself who are medical students, what can we do to assist the rest of the team? I think one of our most valuable assets is time. We just objectively have more time than everybody else. Our responsibilities are just a little bit less. So what can we do to help you out? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Because I think being a medical student sometimes feels awkward because you want to help, but you don't want to intrude and you want to, you know, know your space and know what you should be doing and not. And I think the best thing to do is look for things that need to be done that maybe aren't getting done. Because let's say I'm in a room with a family and I see that family members are standing up and they've been there for a while. And I'm talking with them about what's going on. Well, then maybe a code happens in the next room and I'm running to the next room to take care of a code. They're still standing. You notice that and you say, let me get some chairs. It's a simple thing. And I don't mean it to sound as if the medical student is there to do the, the menial stuff or the scut work or stuff like that. But usually, I'm not going to get to it because I have something different to do. But if you see that, grab a blanket, grab a meal, grab a chair. Those things go a long way for the family, and it's really helpful for me. Because if I'm not running around looking for a chair, then I can go take care of the next patient who's, you know, needing something. And the, and the other thing I would add, just on, on the tail of this conversation is, as a medical student, you should try to be in on as many family meetings as possible. 
And when we have family meetings or hard conversations, it's not at the top of our brain to say to the medical student, we should, we should say, come and join us for this meeting. And we're not always thinking of that. Ask the question, say, hey, can I observe? Because the more family meetings you see, you'll see different people's styles. My style is going to be different from somebody else's style, and that's going to be different from somebody else's style. This is a very stylistic thing. I try to be in on family meetings with other attendings and our palliative care team and chaplains because they say things sometimes that I think, wow, that's a really thoughtful thing to say. And I really like the way that they approach this. It's different from how I approach it. And I sometimes will adopt strategies or phrases or ways to talk with families that I learned from other physicians. And you guys should do that too. Don't ever be hesitant to ask somebody, can I go in on this family meeting? Doesn't mean you're going to have to talk. Doesn't mean you're going to have to do anything. You'll likely just observe. But watching many different people do it different ways will help you develop your own style of doing this and becoming more comfortable with it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Marcolini, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come out and chat with us about such an important topic. For everyone who's listening, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us and be sure to look out for more podcasts coming out. Have a great day. Goodbye. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.